uh, like, no, it's not Communion Sunday. But when your wife buys you a new tie, well, you wear it. There has always been religious false teaching uh, in the world. From the very beginning of creation, there have always been those who say, I, I know God said this, this is who He is, and this is the way to reach Him, to be in relationship with Him, but, but I think I'll do it my way. So at the very beginning, the serpent said to Eve, did not God say you could eat of any tree of the garden? So, so what's the big deal with this tree? To, to which Eve responded, every tree is ours except this one. If we eat it, we die. And the serpent, who we know to be Satan, said, you will not die. God knows if you uh, eat it, you, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound enticing? Don't we, from the time our kids are little, try to teach them good from evil? I mean, who, who doesn't want to know that? Who doesn't want to be like God? Who doesn't want to be God? I know God said do it this way. Why not do it your own way? It's so much better. What does God know anyway? Satan is the father of lies and became the prototype of all false teachers who have come since. I know God says this. This is the way to know Him, to reach Him, but why not do it this way? And so a little later, Genesis chapter 11, we read about people, apparently like all people, deciding to build a tower to reach heaven. <laughs> like, what's wrong with that? Trying to, trying to reach heaven, trying to reach God. It's not the way to know God. It's not the way to be in relationship with Him. They were saying, we know God said do it this way. We've come up with a better plan. Let's invent our Let's invent our own religion. This is how we will worship. This is how we'll reach Him. And of course, God came down, confused their languages, dispersed them. We know it as the Tower of Babel. In Romans chapter 1, Paul described this ever-ongoing process of doing it our way like this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What truth did they suppress? What, the way to know God, the, the way to reach God. Paul had just told them in the verses before the way to reach God is through faith. The way to reach God is through the gospel. The people have always suppressed that truth more. They have rejected that truth, and, and they seek to do it their own way. You, you see, that which is known about God is, is evident within them, for, for God made it evident to them. For since oh, This is since the very creation of the world. His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, they've been, they've been clearly seen being understood uh, through what has been made so that, so that they are without excuse. Let me be very clear here. God has revealed Himself in creation, but humanity took that revelation and said, no thanks. 
We, we will do it our way. Therefore, they are without excuse. They stand condemned. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or, or give thanks. That's interesting. To know God is to give thanks, but, but they became futile in their speculation. That sounds oddly familiar. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the form of, a, of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They invented their own religions. Hey, this is how we will reach God. This is how we will worship God. False teaching has always been in the world. It's why world religions and, and cults abound. Everyone is trying to do it their own way. And, and any way besides God's prescribed way through faith in the finished work of, cross, uh, of Christ on His cross Anyway, but the gospel is ultimately damnable. It damns people to an eternity without God. You will not reach God your own way. You must do it His way. There is no other way. Even after Jesus came the first time, well, especially after Jesus came the first time, false teachings have abounded. Yeah, even within the church. I, I know the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, but can't they, can't, can't they make it some other way? I think I'll, uh, you can reach Him any way you want. Or, or maybe Jesus is, is good, but he's, he's not quite good enough. If you want to reach God, if you want to be really holy, we'll tell you how. Paul told the Galatians, adding anything to grace through faith in Christ causes you to fall away from true saving grace. Do not spoil Christ's work. Don't diminish it by adding to it as if his cross work was admirable, really kind of cool, but not enough. Do this. Add to it, and you show that you don't know Him, you don't know grace, you're doing it your own way, and you have fallen from grace. This, you see, is the problem in Ephesus. Paul and, and Timothy had traveled together to the city and found it consumed with false teaching from the elders. Well, while he was there, Paul found out who the ringleaders were, a couple of guys named Alexander and Hymenaeus, and, and he disciplined them. He actually kicked them out of the church. Paul, Paul then had to leave. He had other responsibilities, but he left Timothy there to set things in order. I want you to tell certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And, and it doesn't actually uh, tell us a lot about the false teaching in chapter 1, other than the following things that we learned, that they were indeed teaching strange doctrines, heterodoxy. Their, their teaching focused on 
on myth and endless genealogies. Their teaching gave rise to, 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 to mere speculations. That's where that sounded familiar, which strayed from the gospel and promoted these fruitless, meaningless discussions. The, the, the false teachers imagined themselves teachers of the law, which caused some to surmise that their teaching was somehow related to aberrant Jewish teaching. Regardless, their, their teaching was not in accord he tells us, with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, he says it has shipwrecked their faith. It is blasphemy. This is all we know. But hey, it's apparently egregious. This is significant error that required immediate attention. I mean, we're talking church discipline. It required Paul to leave Timothy to straighten things out. And then Paul writes this letter to help him do that. In chapters 2 and 3, it says, here, here, this is what you need to do to fix this problem. He addresses church worship and, and, and church leadership. Then last week, right there in the very middle of the letter, Paul wrote these words, I am, I am I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, need to help out there. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of of the truth. What, what, what truth? What, 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 well, let, let me make sure that you know it. Here it is, my common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness. He was, he was revealed in the, in the flesh. He was vindicated uh, in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. I, I don't want you to miss what Paul just did. These false teachers, you see, were messing with this truth that the church was supposed to be protecting. So, so he says, let me be clear about what this truth is. It's the truth about Jesus and his gospel. It's about his incarnation at the first Christmas, his work on the cross at first Easter, his, his ascension into glory and the proclamation of this wonderful, beautiful gospel to all of the nations so that people believe. This is the truth, you see, that the church is supposed to hold high for everyone to see. This is a church that we are supposed to protect at all costs. This is the truth. The church in Ephesus is incredibly somehow lost. Having given us the mystery of godliness, Paul now gives us the mystery of ungodliness. He tells us about this false teaching. Now, now before we jump into it, let me, let me remind, give you, uh, remind you of a very brief outline of this letter since we haven't looked at it in a while because we're getting ready to jump into a new major section today. After the salutation, which is the greeting, kind of the how, how you doing thing, uh, he, he deals with false teachers right out of the chutes in the rest of chapter 1. Then he gives some instructions to the church, chapters 2 and 3. We just, we just finished that. Now he's going to jump back to, to these false teachers, uh, chapter 4. And then he's going to go back to giving some instructions to the church about caring for certain groups within uh, the church. Then he's going to come back to those false teachers before he closes the book. Here's what I want you to notice. Paul deals with these false teachers throughout the book, chapters 1, uh, 4, and, and 6. And each time we learn a little bit more about their false teaching. And so we begin, it, as we begin this new section, I'm going to tell you, I mean, this is some really, really bad stuff going on in Ephesus. I mean, Paul is going to identify some of their false teaching, which he, he actually calls it doctrines of demons. This stuff is being taught by, the, by devils, deceitful spirits. It has caused some to fall away from the, 
from the faith. I mean, this is, this is serious. I mean, read it with me. Paul just, he's just highlighted the truth of the gospel at the end of, of chapter 3. He starts chapter 4. You understand there's no chapter division. In fact, the very next word out of his quill reads, but. Here's the great and glorious gospel, but. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, latter times, some will fall away from this faith, this truth, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Man, who? And here we're going to get to their teaching. For, forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. What? Which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and Nothing is to be rejected if it is revealed, or excuse me, received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the Word of God and, and prayer. And you go, well, wait, 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 time out. Did I miss something there? I, I, I must say something else in the Greek. You're going to tell us, right? I mean, come on. I expected them to deny the deity of Jesus Christ, which false teachers have done. I expected them to deny the, uh, the virgin birth, the truth of the first Christmas, which false teachers have done. I expected them to deny the resurrection, the, the, the truth of Easter, which false teachers have done. I mean, but did I hear that right? Were they just saying, hey, stay single and be a vegetarian? What's the big deal with that? Here's the big deal. They were saying, if you want to reach God, if you want to worship God, if you want to be accepted by God, if you want to be in relationship with God, then you got to do it our way. And they missed or at least messed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They said, don't get married. Don't eat certain foods, probably meat. God may have said that marriage was good. God may have said that all foods are clean. But hey, have we got a better way for you. If you really want to worship God, if you really want to be in right relationship with Him, if you really want to reach Him, then you must do it our way. The gospel, hey, that's nice, not enough. You need our brand of faith. And God says through the Holy Spirit, you have just fallen away from the Christian faith. You have attacked the perfect gospel of Jesus Christ, and that will never do. Don't do that. You see, when you start messing with the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul comes out swinging. So let's make our way through this text. But as we do, I, I want it rattling around in your brain. Here's what I want you to be rem remembering all the time. I want you to be reminded of the beauty and perfection of, of the gospel. God's prescribed way to reach him. There is no other way. Here's the simple outline, the teaching of the false teachers, followed by why their teaching was, in fact, false. Paul starts with, but in contrast to this great mystery of godliness found in Jesus, here is this mystery of ungodliness. But the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, exp explicitly or clearly says that in later times, stop right there. You see, I don't know about you, but as I read that, there's a couple of questions I have to ask. First, like how or when did the Spirit say this, right? 
Spirit clearly, well, when? When did he, when did he say it? Some suggest this refers to that time when Jesus gave a description of the last days or the later times. And in Matthew chapter 24, he speaks there of some falling away, uses some of the same language. That must be it. But no, others suggest this refers to what Paul said in Acts chapter 20 when he said, Obviously, prophetically, after I leave, savage wolves will come in in sheep's clothing uh, from your own number, not sparing the flock. They will speak perverse, that is, heretical things to draw away disciples after themselves. This, this is it. These false teachers were from their own elders. Paul must have been speaking by the Holy Spirit when he prophesied. And now we see it happening. Still others say, no, not quite. Every writer of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every writer could actually say, as they wrote the Bible, the this, this Spirit clearly says. So which one is it? Yes. Yes, Jesus prophesied this event. Yes, Paul prophesied this event. Yes, every writer of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit so that what is written is inspired by God, inerrant, perfect, and trustworthy, every bit of it clear for us today. So take your pick. Take all three. After all, you're Americans. You can't have it all. But so the, the Spirit has clearly said that in later times, well, what are the later times? And, and you might naturally think, well, that's, that's at the end of time. It's in the future, right before Jesus comes back. And, and you'd be right. Well, sort of. You see, Paul talks about what the false teachers will teach in later times. And then he talks about them being right there in Ephesus. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says that in the last days, difficult times will come. And then he goes on to describe what those difficult times will be like. It's because it can be filled with difficult people. And then he tells Timothy, so I want you to avoid them. Well, yeah, that's right. In other words, Paul saw the later days, the last days, as being when he was alive, when he and Timothy were battling false teachers. You see, most scholars agree that the last days actually began with the ascension of Christ and will be consummated with his return. That means that we are currently living in the later or last days when false teachers and evil people will abound. We, you see, we live in times when people apostatize, when they make professions of faith and then turn away. Have you not, have you not seen that? Have you not known people who profess to be believers, you know, Right? And, and, then they, and then they walked away? Well, well, well John says they would. He, he, he says in his first letter, the, the, the antichrists, that, that is people who are opposed to Christ, who he is and what he's done, his deity and his work. He calls them antichrists. They, they, these antichrists went out from us, but they were not really of us. For had they been of us, they would have remained with us. But by their going, they show they didn't really belong. Yeah, people walk away. We are living in later times when some will fall away from the truth. And while it saddens us, it should not surprise us. In fact, I'm going to suggest it actually authenticates Scripture. 
You see, it's a strong word that Paul uses here. It speaks of apostasy. It speaks of actually turning away from, from the faith. Now, I need, to be, I need to be clear. I do not think that these are Christians who somehow lost their salvation. The Scripture is too full of promises that God will indeed keep those He saves, that Jesus will lose none of those that the Father has given Him. As in John chapter 6, I looked it up, and none means like none. It's like zero. He's going to lose none of them. So, so, so rather, these are those who claim to be Christians, but then turn from it. These are those that Jesus spoke of in the parable of the sower, those who heard the gospel, seemingly accepted it, but the seed, it fell on hard or rocky ground. It fell in amongst the thorns. In other words, while there appeared to be spiritual life, it soon withered away because there was no true saving faith. They fell away from the gospel that they heard. Now, why, why would they do that? How does this actually happen? Well, Paul tells us two sources here of false teaching, which these particular, uh, uh, these people that had fallen into apostasy had, had, had followed, which led to their apostasy. He gives us two sources of false teaching. You ready? Deceitful spirits and hypocritical liars. In other words, I know I need you to hear this, false teaching ultimately has its source in demons mediated or propagated through human teachers. I do not want you to miss the magnitude of what Paul just said. False teaching, whether that is false teaching within Christianity that results in heretical cults that abound, that are all around us, or False teaching outside of Christianity and false religions, think every other world religion, all have one and the same ultimate source, deceitful spirits. This takes us all the way back to the beginning, to the garden, when, when Satan, the father of lies, deceived Eve with false teaching and lured her and, frankly, the rest of humanity into spiritual ruin. The, the truth is, he's still up to the same old tricks. Divert attention from the true and the living God, worshiping and approaching Him the way that He prescribes and only the way that He prescribes, and then you then send people to spiritual ruin and death. You see, Satan not only entices people to sin, he seduces people to error. That's what he does. It's deceitful spirits who propagate their doctrines teachings or doctrines of demons. That's De what it says. It's a, uh, demons. Two basic, uh, two fundamental mistakes, extremes that we can make about demons. Uh, and first is we can assume that they don't exist. Ah, come on, that so-called demonic activity that we read about in the New Testament. Come on, we're a lot smarter now. That can all be attributed to mental illness. Little medication will do you. Well, one author said this. The devil's cleverest ruse is to make uh, men believe that he does not exist. Come on. That's so pre-Renaissance, pre-Enlightenment. We know better. 
He does exist. Paul told these same Ephesians earlier, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Oh, make no mistake about it. They exist and they love it when you deny their existence. But, but, but the other extreme, the other mistake is to credit, credit everything to demons. <laughs> Why, they are behind every tree, under every rock, behind every bush. And so you get a cold or a flat tire or miss the bus, must be demonic attack. You, you do understand that even unbelievers get flat tires and occasionally miss the bus. Uh, others attribute their own sinful activity to demons, right? Hey, the devil made me do it. Might have enticed you, but the truth is, I just want to tell you that you are perfectly capable of sinning without his help. Others live in unholy fear of demons. Unholy fear. As if they have some power that God has not granted. I want to remind you today that Jesus defeated the devil at the cross. I want to remind you today, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I want to remind you today that Jesus came so that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Did you see what he just said? You don't have to fear the devil and you don't have to even fear death anymore. You were a slave to fear of death no longer. Jesus defeated that. You've been delivered by the work of Christ. Two extremes to avoid. They don't exist or to grant them too much attention. But there is a balance, and we should take this seriously. I'll say it again. False teaching has as its ultimate source Satan and his demons. That is why John urges us to test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For, he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Prompted by false spirits. And they love to introduce heresy in the midst of truth and lead people astray. He loves to appear as an angel of light and just mix in a little error, which is what was going on here. Think of it this way. I mean, how much cyanide does it take in a glass of water to kill you? That entire glass can be filled with pure, clean, sparkling spring water, drop in a little cyanide, mess with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it means spiritual ruin and death. That's what was happening. They had taken the pure and beautiful perfect gospel, and they had, they had ruined it. They were saying, if you want to reach God, if you want to be accepted by God, you've got to do it our way. And the, and the spiritual source of this false teaching was demons, because the demons don't think get you off of the gospel, you have fallen from grace. The human source was false uh, teachers, here described as hypocritical liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. Please know they were hypocritical liars, what John Stott called twice liars. You see, they were hypocrites, deceptive in their behavior. They were liars, deceptive in their speech. 
But don't miss this. He calls them hypocrites. To be a hypocrite is to be one who wears a mask. Most suggest that these guys knew exactly what they were doing. They were interesting heresy. They knew that it was heresy, and they did not care. Listen to me. Like those charlatans on Christian TV. Somebody asked me after the first service, well, how do you know which ones are? I said, pretty much if you turn on TNN, turn it off. They are introducing destructive heresies and they know it. They are bilking the church. They are fleecing the flock. They are after your money. How, how, can, how can they do that? I shudder to think of the condemnation they will face. How can they do it? Well, because their consciences are, are seared. Well, that means one of two things. The word is used only here in the New Testament. It speaks of branding animals or actually branding slaves. But it was a sign of ownership. These guys have been branded as owned by the very father of lies, these deceitful spirits own them, and they do his bidding. That's how. Could notice also, though, that their consciences were seared. The idea there could speak of, they're cauterized. See, Paul has talked about the conscience already several times in this book, a good or a clear conscience that comes by obeying the demands of the gospel life. These men had seared their consciences. They had put them to death through their false teaching and resulting sinful lifestyles. Their consciences no longer served a useful purpose of convicting of wrong. I, I don't know which one it is. They're either owned by Satan to do his work or they're, they, 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 their consciences are dead. They don't even care. The, the fact is they're hypocritical liars and they're seeking to seduce you. This brings us finally to their false teaching. Paul said they were forbidding people to marry and they were forbidding eating certain foods, again, likely meats. This is called asceticism. In other words, I need you to get this. This is why this is so important. They were making spirituality, likely even salvation, a matter of jumping through their hoops, of, uh, of certain external performances. Do this or you're lost. This harsh treatment of the body. Paul had to battle this throughout his ministry in Ephesus, in Colossae, in Corinth. This is how you reach God. This is how you become holy. Okay, make, make no mistake about it. Paul does teach that there are times to fast as a discipline to grow in your spiritual life. And yes, it is true that he even commends singleness. He, 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 but, but, but even when he commended it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can look it up, he, he, he pointed out that the gift of celibacy was not for everyone. In fact, the more normal expectation is marriage. Don't know if you know this or not, but if we were all celibate, we'd cease to exist. These guys were saying celibacy is for everyone as a means of higher spirituality or as a means of gaining a right relationship with God. Not eating certain foods, whatever they were, like, again, likely meat, is, is the means of gaining acceptance by God. I want you to get, this is what legalists do. They find something that is good for them, you know, like fasting, for example, and they make it mandatory for everyone else. 
And as such, don't miss it, they are messing with the gospel. They are denying the full sufficiency and satisfaction of the cross to save us and make us holy. Don't mess with the gospel. Pastor Kent Hughes says, asceticism not only slams the creator, but the sufficiency of the son's work. And that will never, ever do, never add to the gospel. And all that brings us then finally to our second point actually serves as our conclusion. How does Paul then, having identified their teaching, how does he defeat it? Quite simply, he says two things. He says two things three times in second part of verse 3 and verse 4 and 5. First, he says, that which they are withholding from you, God intends, has always intended for your good. Again, three times. Everything God created is good. We remember the words of God at the creation account. At the end of the, each day of creation, he kind of looked around and said, hey, that's really good. Or he says, that's good. And then he gets to the end of the six days, he looks at everything he created and says, hey, that's very good. Everything God is, has created is good. I'll go further. It is for our good. It is for our benefit. In fact, for our enjoyment and for his glory. So for these guys to show up and say these things are bad, these things are evil, is to suggest that these good things that God created are evil, that God is the author of evil. As I said earlier, it's possible these guys were influenced by aberrant Jewish teaching, maybe Greek dualism or incipient Gnosticism. What, they taught, what that taught was that everything physical, this body, everything physical is, is evil. Only the non-material, the, 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 spirit, uh, the spiritual is good. And so anything that you do to take care of this physical body, not good. And the church has always battled such false teaching, that God's good creation and His good gifts are somehow evil. There have always been groups, for example, that have suggested that marriage is bad and that singleness is somehow better. The early church fathers, a couple of them uh, by name, Tertullian and Ambrose, kind of messed this thing up. They both taught, now listen to this, this is kind of interesting. They both thought and taught that the extinction of the human race was better than sex and marriage. Just saying you wouldn't be here. Ambrose even wrote that married people, if, if you're married here this morning, just think about this, that married people ought to be ashamed of the state in which they find themselves. Even Augustine said that sex and marriage for procreation was a good thing, but when accompanied with passion, it's, it, it, it was sinful. I'll let you kind of grapple with that one. The, 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 Roman, <laughs> Ooh, bad. Uh, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church has wrongly taught for centuries that, that marriage is, is kind of bad because of sex. And so priests, you can't marry. Nuns, you can't marry. They even, I don't know if you know this or not, they even started listing certain days that prohibited sexual relationships in marriage. And soon that number of those days within the year was over half of the 365 days in a year. Over half that is a year, no sex for you. No wonder there was a Reformation. Well, <laughs> Paul does not talk about marriage much in this particular passage. He's already affirmed it in his qualifications for elders and, and deacons. He's going to talk about it when he talks about widow, young widows remarrying. Besides, he had already written this particular church, uh, Ephesians, where he held high uh, this thing we call marriage. But, but he does go on to talk a lot about food. Again, there have always been those who, suggesting that certain foods are bad and others are better and therefore more 
spiritual, right? I want you to listen to me. Marriage is a gift from God to us. Like all of His gifts, we can pervert it. And what is supposed to be for our good has become in many ways a source of pain and sorrow and irritation and even immorality. But if we treat marriage the way that God intended it, as a source of completion and companionship and joy, then this may come as a surprise to some of you, marriage actually can be good. The answer to the challenges of living in a sinful and broken world and broken relationships is not to abstain from marriage. It is to enter it with God at the center and use the Word of God as your guide. The same is true for, for, for food. There are always people that are out there, that are, that, that, even in our day, folks, that are saying, hey, if you want to really be spiritual, this is, what, this is how you should eat. And so they come up with a hallelujah diet. They even make it sound spiritual or the maker's diet. It makes me so mad. If you want to be a vegetarian, go ahead, but don't make it more spiritual. And don't look down on me because I like five guys. There are, yes, there are times to put away food in the spiritual discipline of fasting and to pursue the giver more than his gifts. But we should never suggest that the way to salvation and the way to become more holy, to reach some second tier, is through the denial of the good things that God provided for our good. God is never, listen to me, I want to say, God is never uh, properly worshipped by the denial of his gifts. What do you think he gave them to us for? And so any teaching that says we should not eat certain foods if you want to be really, really holy, really accepted by God is ultimately demonic. Why? Because it diverts from the gospel. And so how do we receive God's gift of good food with thanksgiving? He says that three times by way of emphasis. Listen, God has created these things to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Everything God created is good Again, he's talking about food and nothing to be rejected is received with gratitude. This idea of thanksgiving, again, is seen. Christians are thankful people. Remember Romans 1? They turned for that. They weren't thankful. Christians, however, are thankful people. Many suggest that this points to the biblical practice of saying grace. God is great. God is good. Go ahead. Because we are recognizing that all these good gifts are from Him. And we are thanking Him for it. And besides, we remember Mark Seven, that Jesus declared all foods clean. In Acts 10, God declared to Peter, listen, everything is good. Go ahead and have an unclean food smorgasbord. Leave my cheeseburger alone. For God's good gifts are sanctified. That is, they are proven holy and good by the Word of God, the teaching that everything that God created is good and for our good, sanctified by prayer. It's not that we make it sanctified. It's an acknowledgement that it has come from Him, and it is good, and we receive it with thanksgiving. That's why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. And when He does, you ought to thank Him for it. That's the point. And this fun? So like you said, I didn't have a problem with any of this. I mean, I've seen you at Five Guys. So what, what, is, what, is, what do we take from this message today? Same as last week. Don't mess with the gospel. We as God's people, listen to me, the church should hold the message of the cross, the message of the gospel high, and we should protect it at all costs. Listen to me, never dilute it, never destroy it, never add to it. The gospel alone saves. That's all we got. Let's stand for prayer.
Father, what else? To whom else can we go? You alone have the words of life. Why, in the, why, why would we create hoops to jump through? Why would we create works that we cannot do? Why would we try to follow a law that you gave us that we could not keep? We accept the provisions and hold high the provisions of the new covenant. You've taken your law and you've written it on our hearts. You've given us your spirit through the finished work of Christ on his cross by whom, by which we can be new creations. Help us to love that. Help us to embrace that. Help us to protect that. Support it. Hold it high so that we can invite others to join us. I pray this in Christ's name.